Support for Milledgeville Matters comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Milledgeville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today we're talking about an amazing little insect that has an outsized impact on our food supply and on our environment. We're talking about bees. And joining me in the studio today is Mary Laxon. She's the president of the Lake Country Beekeepers Association, and she is joining us from Sparta, Georgia. Mary Laxon, welcome to Military Matters. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, in... I'm very excited to host you as well, especially based upon what we're talking about today. It was a little bit of a research study for me to just prepare myself for the interview, and there's been a lot of fascinating conversations I've had looking forward to it, so I'm just so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I've been keeping bees for about six years now, and I feel like I'm still climbing that steep learning curve. There's so much to learn about them and the people that keep them and the schools that are doing research on them and what's happening in our agricultural situation with bees is fascinating to me. Well, and that's one of the things that I think is interesting about this topic is that we think we know about bees, but I don't think we know anywhere close to the whole picture. And I want to start the conversation off there. We know about honey, but that's just one small aspect of what bees do. Can you talk about some of the broader ways that bees interact with our environment in, in our world? Right. Well, I think the biggest thing maybe for us to understand is that there are over 20,000 species of bees. And there's only nine species that are honey-producing bees. So there are a lot of insects, bees out there that are pollinating our plants and our fruits that we certainly reap the benefits from. And if you look at a plate of food, they show that about a third of the food that we consume is as a result of bees pollinating. Again, it's not just the honeybee that's pollinating our food. There are many types of bees that pollinate our food. There's the squash bee, there's a leafcutter bee, there's the mason bee and the carpenter bee that people are probably a little more familiar with. So it's important the bees pollinate that portion of our food that we probably really like to see on our plate, the apples and the blueberries, the watermelon and cantaloupe. People are worried that if we lose the bees, we're going to lose our food. That's not true. We're still going to have the grains that we can eat. Our food plate maybe won't be quite as exciting as all we eat is the wheat and the corn and the rice, but the, the bees add the diversity in our life, whether they're pollinating plants, the flowers, or our fruits and trees. And is this a duty that they carry out worldwide? And I ask this, and I should run it on parallel tracks of, is honey a worldwide phenomenon in which they're creating honey worldwide, but then are they carrying out this oh-so-essential duty of pollinating the plants worldwide, or is it confined to different geographical areas? Right. No, it, it is on every continent except Antarctica. You will find honeybees, and you will find different species of bees, obviously, on different continents. I think most recently in the press, we heard about, oh my gosh, there's been, I think, three or four species of, of bees that have been put on the endangered list. And I think people got somewhat alarmed again, thinking that was our honeybee. It wasn't. It's a species of bees that is particularly found in Hawaii, that pollinates some of the flowers in Hawaii that they're concerned about. They are on the endangered list. But I think people hear bees and they automatically associate with honeybees. Again, there's such a variety of, of bees that do the pollinating for us that we tend to sometimes just get focused on the honeybee because 
many of us think about honeybees and we think about honey and we don't look at the bigger picture that they do such a other amazing job of pollinating, producing propolis and royal jelly and wax from those hives. Looking forward to our interview, we were talking a little bit about some of the different aspects of bees. And one of the things that you know was striking to me, I knew a little bit about this, and of course, you could contextualize it to honey, but the commercial aspects of the bees, I mean, they really aren't just a natural phenomenon. I mean, they're really actually a part of the larger agricultural workforce that's out there. I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about the ways that they not only just contribute honey to um, our agriculture, they not only just go around pollinating, but they're actually, I mean, a real work insect for the agriculture that we know of. Exactly. And I think if anybody has noticed as they're driving down the interstate, there are bees being transported around this country Bees are perhaps here in South Georgia and Florida particularly that are overwintered in large, large apiary settings. I mean, thousands, 5,000 hives at a time. Come about February, a producer will load those colonies onto the back of a semi-truck, and those bees are headed for California because many of us enjoy almonds, and we would not have almonds unless the bee pollinated each individual flower of an almond tree there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 800,000 acres of almond trees, and it takes two hives of bees per acre to pollinate those trees. So you're talking about something in the neighborhood of one and a half million to two million hives that leave the eastern side of the United States and go out west for February and March. And after that, typically are shipped up to uh, Washington to pollinate apples. They might go across to Montana and the Dakotas to pollinate clover and alfalfa. They'll move them on into the Midwest to pollinate maybe pumpkins and cucumbers. They'll move them up to Maine to pollinate blueberries. And then they're coming back down the coast to be overwintered here in Georgia and Florida. And that Uh, was just such an amazing thing to hear to me that these bees, not only are they flying around all (laughs) the time doing the work that they do day in and day out, but then they're actually logging miles on the back of commercial trucks, circling the continental United States with the planting season. I mean, that's just amazing to me. Right. They are well-traveled insects. Well, we are about out of time for this segment, so I do want to take the opportunity for a short break. But if you're just joining us, we're talking with Mary Laxon. She's the president of the Lake Country Beekeepers Association. And we're just talking about the incredible role that these insects play in our environment and in our world. So stay tuned and we'll be right back with more Milledgeville Matters.
Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we're talking about bees, and I'm joined in the studio by Mary Laxon. She is the president of the Lake Country Beekeepers Association. Now, in that last segment, we were talking about the role that bees play in our world and in our environment, in our agriculture. I don't want to you know, presuppose that everyone knows everything about bees. And so I thought we'd just kind of break it down to a very elemental question. We talked a lot about pollination in the last segment, but I know that everyone is wondering, how's the honey made? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a great question. And the bees really are an amazingly created insect, as small as what they are. There's just so many parts of them that go into helping them fly to that flower or to that fruit plant to collect the pollen, to collect the nectar. These insects actually have branched hairs on their body. They're covered all the way head to toe in, in, um, with branched hairs, very small. But as they're flying through the air, it actually creates a negative charge on their body so that when they fly towards the flower that has the pollen at the top, their bodies collect that pollen. It's kind of similar to, I guess, static electricity it is. in the way we see things, dust and other things get caught on our electronic right, items on our right. clothes sometimes. Exactly. And so as they go from flower to flower, they're collecting, but they're also distributing that pollen. So that's the way that they pollinate the various plants that they do. As far as collecting the nectar, the pollen is a protein portion of the uh, food source for the insect. The nectar is the, the carbohydrate or the sugar portion. The bee has a little nose. It's a little pointed uh, proboscis, they call it, and it will stick that into the plant and suck out the, the nectar or the sugar from the plant, and they will carry that back to the hive. In the hive, there's a system of workers in the hive that collect that nectar from that bee that brought it back. They add other enzymes to the nectar, and then deposit that nectar into a particular cell within the hive body. And um, when we talk about the nectar in the plants, I think many of us who probably grew up uh, around the South, we're probably familiar with honeysuckle. Is that the kind of nectar that we're talking about? I and mean, anyone who's had the opportunity to just kind of pull that little right. hair, oh, hair or, uh, you know, of course, the little, <laughs> the little petal or whatever it is mm. from, from the plant and to, to suck it, that's, that's what you're talking about. You can do that with clover and if you've done it with honeysuckle and other types of plants, that's exactly what the bee is collecting. It's just that they add other enzymes from their own bodies to that nectar to create that honey for us. And they say that each bee collects about a half teaspoon of nectar itself to go back and make the honey with. So every bee collecting a half a teaspoon, one hive of bees will produce anywhere from 200 to 400 pounds of honey a year. That varies depending upon where that hive is geographically. In our portion here in, in central Georgia, you know, there's such a variety of, of agricultural crops that if you're in a forested area, you may not have a lot of sources of nectar for the bees. So one hive may cover be a five-acre radius, whereas I've got bees that are on soybean fields just south of here. And wow, it's like living by a refrigerator for those bees. I, I'm amazed at the quantity of honey that I'm getting off of soybeans. It doesn't taste very good, I'll tell you that, but it provides a food source for the bees. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Can you talk about some of the regional variations that we might see in honey or in some of yeah, uh, the... Yeah, the, the nectar sources that bees have. Because again, it's the nectar that makes the honey. 
And the variety of plants that we have in this area here is primarily, it starts with the red maple trees in the late February, early March. We have a lot of blackberries that bloom. We have a lot of wild crabapple trees that the bees are collecting nectar from. Tulip poplar is another source. Blackberry, privet. Oddly enough, privet makes some of the best tasting honey. And that's what we're getting a lot of my honey from where I am in Sparta. But further south, like I was saying, people put bees on cotton. They put them on soybeans. They put them on canola. Buckwheat is a wonderful source of honey, source of nectar for bees. Further south, we talked about goldberry and tupelo honey, very different flavors. I have actually loaded my bees on the back of my truck and took them clear up to North Georgia to capitalize on the sourwood honey that comes in about late June, early July just a flavor of regional variety and the honey that we can produce just here in Georgia. And this gives us a great segue because we're about to do something we've never done on this radio station to my knowledge. You actually brought in some samples of honey to try. Thank you very much gonna, for, for I'm doing this. I'm going to challenge you here. <laughs> very interested uh, to give this a try and to actually maybe describe some of what I'm tasting uh, for a radio audience. And so you brought three different samples of honey And you were asking me if I could taste the different variations of them. Right. There's a lot of people that raise bees in order to produce honey to then take that honey and put it into honey shows that are around this state, at the state fair down in Perry, as well as local bee clubs have honey shows. And so there's there's quite a range of colors of honey. You, You can see there some of that honey is very light, and then the one that I brought in there is a little bit darker. Yes, and one is like very much what I would typically associate the color of honey right. being. And then the others are a little bit lighter. And I'm having one yeah. looks slightly potentially darker than the right. other. Yeah, so a way for your audience to think about it, when they go to the store and they go to that shelf and see maybe, you know, quite a variety of honey and it's different colors, it is said that the lighter the honey, the further north you are of the equator. So you get our darker honeys in Florida, and our light honeys come from the clovers and alfalfas that are up in the northern part of the country. So the two varieties that we have there are quite close regionally, so there's not a lot of difference in their color. And is this like some other, I guess I'm most, and I'm almost ashamed to say this, I'm I'm most used to beer tastings where you always try the lightest beer first and then go to the darker because they consider the darker ones to be a palate bruiser. Is that the same here? Should I be looking for these subtle differences in the light ones before moving on to dark? I think that's a good way. I think you might want to become a honey judge here. That's (laughs) You've got the making. So I'm going to try from the number two sample, and this is the one... Feel is the um, lightest, uh, just okay. by looking at them. That's my judgment that this is the lightest okay. one. So I'm just going to And take... you know, honey is something that never spoils. They say that they found honey in Egyptian pyramids, and honey will crystallize, but you can always heat it up and liquefy it, and it'll never spoil on you. So, and so I'm just tasting the lightest one. It's very... It... I guess I have to try the other ones to know the, the differences with what I'm looking at. But right. you know, it's very much tastes like a very nice sweet honey. Mm-hmm. Um, Any aftertaste or there is an aftertaste, but it's something that I can't really describe as much. It almost mm-hmm. kind of has like a an herbal type feel to it. Mm-hmm. When I, I guess we were speaking earlier, I've seen the differences between Tupelo honey, and that's the first time I was really able to able to taste. 
that right. difference between non-Tupelo honey and the Tupelo honey. And this kind of has more of a an herbal-type mm-hmm. aftertaste mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And so let me try another spoon. It's very difficult for a, a honey um, producer to 100% say this is apple honey because, you know, a bee flies about a five-mile radius from its hive to collect honey. So I don't think we have many cropping situations in this country where we have five miles of a continuous crop. So to say that something is 100% from one nectar source, I would challenge that. Well, and that's one of the interesting things, that, as you talked about taking the hives to different places. I imagine I probably share this layman's idea with with many others that how do you control where they go? And right. I guess that's a, a different yeah. part about their social dynamics that they have and right. um, how they operate out in the environment. Right. And so here we are. This is sample number three, but the second one I'm trying. And okay. again, I was going from light to dark. And I almost feel like the spot's on me right now. I like <laughs> feel this inflative sense to to, ha- to be able to tell the difference in this yeah. one. You, know, I guess this one tastes a little bit woodier. I'd mm, almost say, interesting. and it doesn't have uh-huh. that same kind of you know again herbaceous time, kind of mm-hmm. aftertaste to it. It mm-hmm. kind of had more of a woody flavor to it right on the very beginning. As soon uh-huh. as I as soon as I tried it, right? Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Of course, I'm also feeling under the pressure now because of you're on no, the other end going, no. well, that is nothing <laughs> close to how we have. I, I can still see you, you. You need to check out how to become a Welsh honey judge. Uh, and there's, mm. there's, That's a, a course you could take here at the University of Georgia to learn how to become a judge. And we need mm. them. Well, and that's one of the, the other things that we talked about as we were planning our, our conversation today is that there are a lot of uh, resources available here locally. And uh, right. you just mentioned one, which is the University of Georgia. They yes. um, have bee research division within their College of Agriculture. Yes, the University of Georgia Bee Lab is up in Athens. They do tremendous research. They work so well with both the, the small producers, <laughs> beekeepers like me, to the large commercial beekeepers. And they have a relatively small staff. They have both a master's and a PhD program, but they're sending their people all over the world to collaborate and work with other beekeepers and universities on better beekeeping in this world. So great, great institution there with Dr. Delaplane. He actually offers a uh, a bee college. It's every toward the end of May every year up at Young Harris, and it's, it's a three-day college event where you can come as a beginning beekeeper or as a, an experienced beekeeper and they bring in speakers from all over the country. To me, that's it speaks to the importance of the roles bees play in agriculture. Right. Because, of course, you know the University of Georgia was started off as an agricultural college, right. if I remember that's right. um, the, the history well. And the idea that they have a research institute within that university about right. bees. Right. So now I'm on my third sample, and again, this is the darkest one. And when I looked at this, you know, this is what I interpret honey to you know look like when I when I see it commercially. And right. of course, these are all in little bears, and so like this one is exactly what I would expect to see. You know, if I were to go to a, a nicer grocery store and, and be selecting honey there, right? And so let's give this third sample a try. Mm-hmm. So another place to talk about that's really active with with the Beekeepers, both uh, small and large, is the Georgia Beekeepers Association, an organization that's over 25 years old and represents a 
44 clubs here in this state. So it's a great organization. You can find out a lot of information by visiting their website to see where there are beekeepers, where you can buy local honey, where you can buy bee supplies, et cetera. So both the University of Georgia and Georgia Beekeepers Association are working with us and for us here in this state. And now with that honey, that was very much like the appearance of it. That's the taste that I very uh, commonly associate with honey. And then mm-hmm. it had a floral. As I said, the first one, it tasted more herby and herby. That's a, that's a good <laughs> word. I'm sure that's a tasting <laughs> note that they have. But this one, it tasted like flowers in a sense. Like as if, uh-huh. you know, when you go up and approach a, a beautiful bouquet of flowers and you get that first big breath of, you know, flowers in there, uh-huh. that one, it tasted similar to this. Uh-huh. And so if I were to go back, and just, uh, you know, uh, synopsize why I taste, you know, the first one, it kind of had, it tasted herbal to it, like mm-hmm. almost like a, like you could kind of taste it being in an herbal tea or something. Right. The other one had a kind of a woody flavor, mm-hmm. almost like as if sometimes, I guess, when you cook with like cedar planks and things, you kind of have that woody kind of flavor. And it was that flavor on that one, I remember being on the tip of my tongue. Right. Whereas this one, it had a very floral, you know, should I say bouquet to it? Uh-huh. <laughs> no, now, might I ask you what, what was it? What was I tasting? Well, let me ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. Which one of them did you? Did you have a preference for one over the other, or is it? I'm not just depending. You know, like, I, I, and that's an interesting question because I appreciate all of them, and mm-hmm. I think that they would have different applications in wanting to sweeten things so right. like if i had them all in the pantry i might use them for different things oh, interesting. but if yeah. i were to talk about a preference uh, from just this taste testing i would say that the second one that i tried was the most interesting and unique mm-hmm. and the one that challenged my sensation of tasting honey the most you need to become a honey judge i just <laughs> tell you <laughs> you'd be great well actually number one which i think is so, okay, so we yeah. have number one here okay. and two. I, I kept them in, in. Yeah, very good. Number one is off the shelf from a local mm. grocery store. I think I looked I on the label. <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked on the label of it, and I think it it comes out of out of Illinois, Northern Illinois. Yes, it was called Full Circle Organic Honey. So that is actually a probably produced someplace and blended and put on the shelf. So it's not a local honey. Number two is the honey that I produced at our farm. And like I was saying earlier, most likely it's a combination of blackberry and privet. Okay. So it does have that, like you described it, kind of the wildflower herbal Mm -hmm. taste to it. I know privet is a a pesky little plant that a lot of people want to get rid of. But for us beekeepers, we kind of like it, especially in the later part of the summer or later part of the spring, I should say. The last one is uh, sourwood honey. Mm. that I said comes from the North Georgia very mountains. <laughs> very, very popular variety of honey and one that some people just, that's the only honey that they'll eat because it has such a, like you said, I loved how you described it as a woody taste because that's exactly what it is. It comes mm. from the sourwood tree, which are massive, beautiful trees up in North Georgia. We have a few of sourwoods around here, but again, not enough of sourwood trees to provide a nectar Sur- surplus for the bees. Well, so. that's uh, you've 
helped me restore a lot of faith in me like <laughs> on taste because you know like one of the things that I do love to do outside of my work here which I, I also love very much it is is eat food it's you know uh-huh. it's definitely one of the hallmarks of, of my wife and I's relationship I think is the reason why we're such a good couple is that we love to cook now I am much more of a I'm not sure why I'm going into this on the radio, but I'm much more of a a person who I I love my recipes and I love to focus on recipes until I got them exactly the way that I want them. But my wife is the adventurous type and, you know, she can never stick to the recipe. I'm not sure how often she actually cooks the same thing a second time. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's that's something, too, that if, if your listeners are interested in learning how to cook more with honey, the Honey Board, which is a federal organization, if you go to their website, they offer lots of lots of recipes. I use a lot of honey in my salad dressing recipes. It's a substitute for your cane sugar. And to learn how to do that is fun to explore and play with when you're when you're cooking. Let's see. The other thing I was just going to mention is, you know, everybody thinks, oh, it's just honey that comes from from the bees. But there are other products from the hive that people actually like to use. The the pollen, uh, beekeepers will collect the pollen that the bees bring in and people use that to eat. They think it's, again, the pollen is the protein source. So it is a protein source for us as well. And people will bottle it and sell it at, at your local farmer's markets. I'm sure you can find it in a lot of not grocery stores, but stores that have more of the herbal type products. Then there's wax. In order to to put the, the nectar into the, the hive, the, the bees have to build up a wax foundation. Uh, when we harvest that the honey, there's wax left over, and people use that wax to make candles, to make assortment of, of crafts from the hive, and those are quite popular. And then there is the royal jelly which is a very particular type of honey that comes from the hive. It's not produced in large quantity, but it has special enzymes in it that some people have become more aware about it and actually ask for it when they buy honey. And I have a question about that. So one of the things that I was reading when I was researching for our interview today was that each hive has a queen bee, but not, and correct me here if I'm wrong, because I probably am, but... It's not that that bee is necessarily born the queen bee. She is selected from some cast of bees, and then they feed her the royal jelly, and that gives her the ability to take on those duties as the queen bee. Yes, she will develop the ovaries to be able to to produce the eggs that continue to make the worker bees and the the male bees in in the hive. But it's only because of that royal jelly, which, again, has special enzymes in it that the worker bees put into the the nectar that is fed to that queen larvae that develops that bee into the queen bee. It's an incredible process and quite fascinating and and the bee the beehive is aware because of pheromones, hormones that are released by the queen when the queen begins to weaken, become old that the other bees will begin to feed one of the larvae, this royal jelly, that that queen will be born and the other queen will be kicked out of the hive and that the hive goes on. So let's take a short break right now. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Millageville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're talking about bees and their role in our environment and in our world, really. We're joined by Mary Laxon. She is the president of the Lake Country Beekeepers Association. And so stay tuned and we'll be right back with more 
Milledgeville Matters. Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters and WRGC 88.3 FM. We're talking with Mary Laxon today. She's the president of the Lake Country Beekeepers Association. And we're talking about bees, the role they play in our environment, whether it's producing the honey or pollinating the crops so that we can have the wonderful variety of agriculture that we have in, in our country. Now, I wanted to harken back to an earlier part of our conversation when we were talking about that theoretical dinner plate that we may have on any given evening. There being a portion of that a plate that may disappear should there be something that would happen to the bee populations out there. And it just led me to I want to ask the question, are there challenges out there that are affecting bees either here locally or nationally or internationally? Right. Well, I think your listeners might remember that four or five years ago, we had this suddenly collapse. It was a colony collapse disorder that affected the bee population in this country. Beekeepers were going to their into their hives, and the hives were gone. There were no bees, and, and it was happening to 30 to 50% of their hives, which was catastrophic for especially a commercial bee producer. So it caused a lot of studies to begin to be done. What's happening in the environment uh, with the bees, with the beekeepers? Beekeepers have always dealt with diseases in their bees. It's just kind of a part of beekeeping, like I think it is with any type of animal production. And what they began to notice, at least most recently, is that there are parasites on our bees, and those parasites want to live with the bees. They don't want to kill the bees. But what happens with those parasites is that they also vector or, or create, introduce other viruses into the bees. So you've got a, a very active mite right now called a varroa that is literally like a tick that is getting on our bees and pulling down the whole hive's nutritional level. Now, why are they suddenly attracted to the bees? And that's where the, the question gets gets a lot bigger because we look at the nutrition. We look at what's happening with the genetics of our bees. Are they becoming too inbred? Uh, is there enough variety in the bee genetics? What's happening with the crops, the soil, the water supply that is is actually, um, as you described earlier, and a great metaphor is the bee, the canary in the coal mine. Is something happening out there that is reflected in what's going on in the beehive? Now, we have certainly dipped Four years ago, I think we hit the trough of, of bee population in this, this country, and it has come back up, both a factor of people taking it, better care of their bees and more beekeepers, too. So that is certainly bringing the bees back to a more 
normal level of production than, than we've had before. Well, and as we think about bees going to so many different flowers or so many other different plants uh, to try to collect the pollen and the nectar and bring back, has there been any changes perhaps in our agriculture that we've seen that have led to a developing issues within bees. Uh, of course, you know, you talked about the genetics of the bees themselves and are they being inbred? But of course, you know, a lot of our agriculture, as we call it, is really becoming monoculture right. in the way that it's uh, produced for the masses. Is that right. having uh, long-term effects that we're starting to see now or starting to grasp? Right. I think what one of the things that we are learning about is that some of the um, pre-emergent fertilizers that we use on some of our plants, especially plants that are sold to gardeners and homeowners is that uh, there are some products in those plants that are not healthy for our bees. And again, because of the Georgia Beekeepers Association, the universities and the larger federal bee associations, they have actually been able to stop these types of pre-emergent fertilizers being used in, in some of the plants that you might buy at a local garden store. And you will see them. I think there's labels actually on these plants now that you want to pay attention to. We're always talking about looking at the label. Look at the label of the the garden plants, flowering plants that you're buying and see what type of products is put into that soil that, you know, eventually is going to come up into the flower of that plant and firstly affect the bees. So I think we all become more educated, more aware of, of not only what we're buying at the grocery store, but what we're we're buying at the garden supply, farm supply businesses that could impact our bees. And again, it's not just the honeybee, but it's it's all pollinators that it that those things are impacting. It's just a, an amazing study in the interconnectedness of <laughs> what we do, what we purchase, and the way that that it goes off and has effects in the environment. Then again, come back and affect our inputs, you know, such as food and you know the agriculture that we have. We're about out of time in this segment, but I wanted to ask you. I mean, we have a few minutes left. What are things that we as non-beekeepers can do to assist bees in, in their incredibly important work? I think one of the best things you can do is be nice to your beekeeper. <laughs> Maybe go out of your way to look for that local honey. That that certainly helps to uh, encourage us and, and support either our hobby or our business. Again, I'm going to put a plug in for Georgia Beekeepers Association because that website lists where you can find local honey and, and use that or ask your if you go to a farmer's market, ask people there, where, is, where can local honey be purchased? I think, too, to just be aware of, of what you're using in your own environment. And we all can certainly relate to using insecticides, uh, pesticides, herbicides, that we might be putting a herbicide on a plant that has a flower on it right now that that bee is visiting. And, and suddenly that bee comes and drinks from that plant and goes back to the hive and, you know, suddenly the whole hive is lost just because of, of that introduction of that insecticide or that herbicide. If you live, live close to a beekeeper, be aware of, of what you're using. Be in communication with that beekeeper about how the two of you can coexist and, and get along about not adversely affecting. Uh, bees are relatively easy to keep. I think the most fascinating thing for me, as much as what I do enjoy the honey, is just walking out into the, the bee yard and, and sitting and, 
and watching the bees come and going into that hive, especially during the springtime when they're just, their little wings, they're just come loaded in. You can actually see the color of the pollen that they're bringing in. So, you know, watch what we're using and, and be aware, look around and see what different types of bees you're noticing in your gardens or in the gardens around our, our cities and parks. As we're thinking about our gardens, you know, the ones that we have control over, those in our, our yards, is there any plants that we might consider adding to the annual mix uh, that we plant? Uh, maybe is it something as simple as, you know, just having a, a diverse, you know, grouping of crops, you know, within your, your home gardens? Or, I mean, heaven forbid, you know, could this be an excuse for me to mow the lawn last or something? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that, that's not a bad idea. That happened to us this year, and we actually had some clover that came up in our yard that we hadn't noticed before, and the bees were just all over that little clover. So maybe that's a good, good start. But, uh, you know, bees, if it can kind of put it into perspective, a half, if you can imagine a half teaspoon of, bee, of honey, just a half a teaspoon, in order to produce that quantity of honey, one bee has to have visited two million plants. So for us as individuals to plant that many plants, we're all going to have to get into big agriculture, it sounds like. Um, I don't think we have to do that. I think we just have to Use some of these resources that, that we talked about today uh, and, and go to those websites. There's lots of information on them that talk about long, long lists of, of trees and shrubs and vines and plants that we can put in our, our spaces outside our houses that will help to nourish the bees and the pollinators that we have around us. We're going to take another short break now, but if you're just joining us, we're talking about bees and their place in our environment and in our world. I'm joined in the studio by Mary Laxon. She's the president of the Lake Country Beekeepers Association. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Milledgeville Matters. Thank you for staying tuned to Milledgeville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today, of course, we are talking about amazing little insect that has an outsized impact on our food supply, but really also our environment. We're talking about bees, and if you're just tuning in, I'm joined in the studio today by Mary Laxon. She is the president of the Lake Country Beekeepers Association. 
Now, we've talked a lot about uh, many different aspects of bees and uh, the role they play in agriculture and just our culture. We even got to do something that was very unique to this show and that we had a taste testing on the radio, which I uh, thank you very much for. But one of the things that we've talked about throughout is just beekeeping and beekeepers. And I thought that this being the last segment of our show today that we'd focus on that. Now, earlier you had mentioned we talked about some of the dangers that there are for bees and some of the challenges that there have been more recently and that are probably still on the horizon. And I was wondering if one of the reactions to that has been a resurgence in interest in beekeeping. Yes, I think that certainly can be correlated quite a bit. I just think within the state of Georgia, they three or four years ago, they had maybe 30 clubs that were regionally located. And today we're up to 44 clubs with many of these clubs having, you know, 100 to 200 members. So there is definitely a, an interest here in the state of Georgia to get involved in beekeeping. It's also a thing where I was talking to our local County Extension agent, who is Keith Fielder in Putnam County, a wonderful beekeeper and honey judge as well. But what he is noticing, and he has many years' experience working in agriculture and working with bees, et cetera, is that the beekeepers that are coming into the industry now, the new beekeepers, they seem to be staying longer. It's hard. It is very challenging that first year or two to keep bees because there is so much to learn. And then you get so discouraged when they disappear or they die for reasons you never really find out. But that's why it is so important to be part of a club. Find a club locally just to go find out about bees if you're even interested in learning more about pollination aspects because through that club you'll meet the new beekeepers that you will feel more comfortable with and you'll get to be mentored by the more experienced beekeepers. And most of these clubs meet on, on a monthly basis, and they are working to bring in those speakers from the university systems, the commercial beekeepers, the people that have the experience that can help get us quicker up that learning curve. I encourage anyone that's interested to, again, go to that Georgia Beekeepers Association website and, and look at the list of bee clubs, and they actually list on there, too, when those organizations meet. We'll ask you about the Lake Country Beekeepers Association. How often do y'all meet? If you put a plug in yeah, for, for y'all right now, please we're, we're don't, proud of, don't be shy. <laughs> we're proud of our little club. It was started by a very well-thought-of beekeeper and carpenter that has been involved with beekeeping probably for 10 years. And it was his vision to start this beekeeping club, having gone to a lot of the clubs himself um, in the eastern part of the state. So he decided to start this club, and we are actually, after four years, we are 60 family members strong, and we're bringing people in from about nine counties that come to our once-a-month bee meetings. We meet on the third Monday of every month, and we usually have about 30 people that show up for these bee meetings, bringing in some very good speakers, too, that people like to hear, and anything from how to treat for the diseases in the hives, to how to prepare your honey for a honey show. So quite a variety of topics to learn about at those bee meetings. If someone was listening to this and thought that this might be an interest to them and that they might want to explore beekeeping, what would be the first steps that you would say, outside of going to some of these great resources that we've talked about throughout, but what are some of the right. things that they might want to consider in their life to see if it'd be a good fit for their lifestyle or their interests? Right. I think it's important to think about where you live 
and where, if you do have want to have beehives, where those hives might be placed. Now, you don't have to live in the same place as your beehives. Like I was mentioning earlier, I have beehives in about four or five locations that I have friends that have crops that I can go and put my beehives on. So that's a possibility for people that maybe don't want to keep them in their backyards. To learn about it, I think the first step is to look where there is a one-day bee class, which again, keep going back to the Georgia Beekeeping Association, but a lot of these clubs, that's the way that they like to help educate local people is that they offer a one-day short course. Our club, for example, is offering a one-day how to do beekeeping on Saturday, January 28th. I know that's a little bit far out, but uh, we are on Facebook. Our Lake Country Beekeepers Association has a Facebook page, so you can follow us there and, and keep up with that information. But the local Putnam County agent, Keith Fielder, will be leading that class. He's done it for us for the last four years. We usually have 40 people that come to those classes. Not everybody ends up becoming a beekeeper because of that, but at least, again, they become more aware of of the bees in in our environment and what they can do, even though they may not feel comfortable having the hives. I ran into a couple the other day at a a club that is trying to get started over in Macon, Georgia, and it's, it's a couple. They said, we've been coming to bee meetings at these bee clubs for the last four years, and we've yet to get our first hive because we just like being with the people that are knowledgeable and can teach us about how we maybe can be better gardeners. We're not necessarily coming to learn how to keep bees, but learning what they can do to, to help with providing those crops or aspects of gardening that can help pollinators. And so we're just about out of time for our show today, but I wanted to just ask you for a personal testimony about why you got excited and passionate about bees and what keeps you passionate about this. Well, I have been keeping bees now for about six years. I have a couple friends, wonderful mentors that are beekeepers, and that is what got me interested in it. And then I had one of those friends that uh, said, let's go up to the the Georgia Bee College up in in Young Harris. And we did that about five years ago. And I think that's where I kind of got bit and Mm -hmm. and just got excited and just met a lot of people from all over the place that got me excited. My goal is to take care of the bees that I have. And when I think out long-term, because I've met so many people that have been keeping bees since they were nine, 10 years old, is that if and when, my husband and I ever have grandchildren, I would like one of my grandchildren to say, my grandmother keeps bees. <laughs> well, as we part today, any final thoughts for our radio audience? I, I think as we've been talking, I think it's just to be encouraged to educate yourself, not only about what you're eating, but what you're seeing around, what you observe around your environment. You know, they teach us when we go into a beehive, when we first open the top of that beehive, is to listen, to smell, and to look. And I think that's what I would encourage um, people to do when they're, they don't have to necessarily be looking for bees, but when you're out amongst the, the, the in nature, that you're kind of more aware with all your senses about what's going on. And uh, we can do that whether we're walking around or we're poking our noses into a beehive. Excellent final thoughts uh, for our conversation today. Mrs. Mary Laxon, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come out and talk to our radio audience about bees and your passion for beekeeping. Well, it was a real pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. You're very welcome.
You've been listening to Milledgeville Matters on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today we were talking about the amazing little insect bees and their outsized impact on our food supply and on our environment. I was joined in the studio by Mary Laxon. She's the president of the Lake Country Beekeepers Association. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. I want to thank you for spending a portion of your evening with us here on Milledgeville Matters. I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.